This is a No Dogma podcast. I'm Brian Hogan, and today I'm joined by Mark Seaman, programmer and author, joining me from Copenhagen in Denmark. Thank you very much for taking time out of your day, Mark. Well, thank you for inviting me. This is our, I think, third podcast? It might be, yeah. Yep. We've, done, we've done this before. Yeah. We certainly have. But to start off, for people who haven't listened to those ones, can you tell us a little mm. bit about yourself? Yeah, so um, I'm based here in Copenhagen, Denmark, and this is where I was born. I've always lived in Copenhagen. Um, I've been doing programming for, this is my third decade that I'm, I'm going into professional programming now. Uh, I've been mostly on the, the Microsoft stack, uh, so lots of C-sharp. I've also done quite a bit of, of F-sharp. And the last 10 years, I've also been dappling with uh, with Haskell, which is not really the Microsoft stack. Um and I've been self-employed for the last 10 years, so I do, um, you know, conference talks. Well, I used to do that, but not in the moment. Um, I do freelance work. I um, keep, you know, internal. I do workshops for companies, all sorts of, of things, whatever, you know, someone would uh, like to, to pay me to do. That's that's how I, you know, pay my bills. And in the next few months, you're going to have a book coming out. That's, yeah, that's true. The title of it is is very interesting. It's code that fits in your head. So I've mm-hmm. I've read a, a draft of it. Why that title? Well, um, so originally the book was actually called something else. When you know, when I was writing it, I, I had another title in mind, um, and that title had something to do with software engineering. But the publisher didn't really feel that um, that that title was you know catchy enough so uh, I came up with a couple of other ideas and and one you know important thing that runs through the entire book is um, you know how the way that our brain works and how the way that our brain uh, you know deals with and, and tries to interpret source code uh, that should inform that's, that's actually a very you know limiting constraining factor in how you know how why it's so difficult to to write software um so that's you know that's basically the you know a problem that this book tries to address you know how do you write code that's that's friendly uh, to the way that the brain actually works and um you know a, a thing that 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 sort of occurred to me afterwards was that you know um when my publisher solicited me for alternative titles um I just threw, you know, up some other things that that might be interesting, um, and since this was already a um, a very you know, important tenet of the book, I just th- you know threw in this idea of code that fits into your uh, in, into your head or into your brain, um, and then later on, Dan North comes to me on Twitter and says, "Well, that's actually you know that's that's a phrase that you know Dan has been using for the last ten years at least," and I I, I think he was a little bit miffed at the at, at the start, um, which is understandable because it sort of looks like I've stolen his idea, uh, but I promise I really I I, I didn't. Um, but he was kind enough to send me some links to some some conference talks that he'd been doing, um, and it's true enough. You know, he has been you know using that phrase for a long time, and I suppose you know I'm I'm a big fan of Dan North, so I've seen lots of his talks. Uh, so I suppose that you know subconsciously that phrase is just lodged in my head, and that you know just came up there. So. I really didn't want to steal his his thunder or anything, um, but I'm going to put a nice thank you in in the book um, for that phrase, and and I think he seems to be you know fairly happy with that now. So um, so we're still good friends. That's that's how I interpret the situation. At least I hope that we are. Um, but that, that's that's sort of how that you know thing came about. But but it has you know it's it's not a you know it's not that the book or it's not that the title is not related to the book at all because the, this is a very central tenet in the book uh, that how our brains um, you know how the brain 
what can I say, the capacity of our brains uh, should inform how we approach software development. And we're going to get into a bunch of your suggestions mm-hmm. and tips and techniques, but your book opens with though, a discussion on you know, software arts or craft or engineering or science. Mm-hmm. Why yeah. did you open up with that? Um, I think... Um, I think that it's important to try to understand a problem. You know, if you want to, you know, propose solutions, um, I think we should, you know, it's always helpful to start by agreeing on, okay, what is the problem actually? Because if you just start, you know, throwing solutions at, at people without trying to explain, okay, this is the problem that I'm trying to solve, uh, then, you you know, the reader might misunderstand. So why are you telling me all those solutions? Um, so, so I, I wanted to outline the problem before I started, you know, talking about all the solutions. And I'm not saying this is the only problem in software engineering, but as the way that I see a major problem in software engineering on software development in general is that um, it's um, it's that it's it's stopped being that you know getting the computer to do something that's no longer the hardest part of software development the hardest part is actually make you know writing the code so that you can you know pick it up later and still understand it you know martin fowler had this nice quote in refactoring saying something like you know uh, every fool can write code that a computer can understand only uh, you know good programmers write code that other people can understand um, and i think that's um, I think that's quite a profound observation, but it's still, you know, the industry, the software development industry is like 70, maybe 80 years old now. Um, And we're still behaving as though, um, a lot of us at least are still behaving as though, you know, writing, you know, making the computer do the thing and that that's that's the hard problem. And as soon as you have the computer doing the thing that you wanted to do, then you're done. You know, that's there's a lot of that mentality still going on in software engineering. Um, so I wanted to start talking about, you know, that I don't think that that's the hard part anymore. You know, this may have been true 50 years ago, but with the modern computers that we have today and, uh, you know, and you can look everything up on Stack Overflow and and, uh, and and all sorts of other things. I I'm. I'm my experience, at least, is that, you know, actually getting the computer to do the thing is not is not really the limiting factor anymore. It's actually understanding all the code that you wrote half a year ago and all the code that your colleagues wrote, you know, two years ago, understanding and and and, and dealing with all of that stuff. That's what slows us down. That's what makes software development difficult. So that's why I wanted to start there. Um, because, as you said, you know, I started talking about, you know, software craftsmanship. Or is it an art? Is it a craft? Is it engineering? Um, and I think it's not engineering. I think it still has the potential to to become an engineering discipline. But I, we we're still struggling by, you know, trying to figure out how we should, you know, do that. Because, you know, in, in engineering, you have some heuristics and you have some ways of working uh, that. Um, that makes things more or less predictable. And we, we seem to be quite a long ways off that goal yet. But then I thought, well, okay, maybe I can do my little bit of, of just inching us a little bit closer to that ideal. Uh, and that's one of the things that, that's one of the reasons I wrote this book. And where do you think that will, I suppose, help the individual developer as they try to progress? You know, if they, can they choose it's an art? Can they choose it's a science? Can they choose it's engineering? 
Right. Well, you know, if you, um, I think if you don't choose, you know, if you don't choose engineering, if you don't choose to try to apply some some heuristics um, to your process, well, it's um, it's like you know, not choosing is also choosing in the sense. So I think if you don't choose that, you know, it 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 does become some sort of an art form instead, um, or or crafts uh, at best. Um, so so what I'm trying to do with the book is that 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 I'm trying to give you some. Um, a lot of techniques, a lot of heuristics, a lot of rules of thumbs that you can you can apply to make your code base a little bit more, uh, or your pr process, if you will, a little bit more um, explicitly understandable, if you will. And and I, I you know and I don't mean the book as being a you know an all of a nothing. It's it's very much a catalog of a lot of things that you can do. And if you find something in the book that you think are, are useful, then you know by all means. Go ahead and do those things. Uh, and if there are things you find that that's ridiculous, then just ignore those things. Um, so there are lots of concrete, you know, ideas in the book about how you can apply um, what I would call, you know, maybe we should call them engineering practices, but at least you know heuristics, more formal, explicit uh, approaches to software development that uh, that hopefully should make the process a little bit more. Um, I wouldn't say determin yeah, well, maybe deterministic, but at least maybe just a little bit more predictable than than most things are these days. Um, but um, what was the question again? <laughs> well, no, it was more about making a choice as a as a person yeah. who, let's say, writes software. You know, right. do does that person get to make a choice between I'm an artist, I'm an engineer, I'm uh -huh, a scientist? Because yeah. you know, we choose titles, and then they go on LinkedIn, and then we get offered jobs based on those titles. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think. I mean, the way that I, you know, the way that I've described software engineering in 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 my new book, that's very much an opt-in thing. It's something that you can choose to do uh, if you find that interesting. Uh, but but you know, I sh I shouldn't. Uh, you know, there's no way to hide the, uh, there's no reason to hide the fact that, uh, you know, if you choose, if you opt into this way of working, you will also adopt a, a process that is a little bit more formalized, um, that is a little bit more, I wouldn't say rigid, but at least it has some, some do's and don'ts. And, um, you know, it's not so rigid that you can never do the don'ts, um, but there's definitely a, a preferred approach to things um and it's not like it's you know and 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 i can you know i can tell that with the words that i'm using here that you know i, I accidentally use the word rigid it sounds like i'm i'm speaking for very formal methods but a lot of the things that i talk about in the book is actually what you would call agile you know approaches to software development um so getting you know rapid feedback and things and so on that's also a process but, but i think it's something you opt into um you know being explicit about okay, how do we get fast feedback about the decisions that we make? Um, that can be an explicit decision, and I think the more of those explicit decisions you you make, the more you opt into a more um, you know explicit way of working. And that, in in my opinion, at least, that moves you towards that that moves the needle towards software engineering more than an art form. Uh, if you really want to treat everything as an art form, it's because you want to be free and express yourself. Um, but that's ne not necessarily, you know, the best way of organizing um, a code base that should be, you know, read and understood by other people as well. I'm going to bring us back to the title of the book, Code mm -hmm. That Fits in Your Head. The 
the, the structure of the book has made up of chapters. And those chapters are, I guess, a guide to helping you write code that fits in your head. So mm-hmm. one of them is uh, one of the chapters talks about complexity and keeping it low. Why is that important? Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, I should probably preface this to, by saying that, you know, I'm I'm not a brain scientist, but even brain scientists, I, I don't really understand how the brain work. You know, we have some models about, you know, how the brain work. And I just read the, the pop psi, you know, distillations of that um but uh, you know one model for thinking about how the how the brain works is that you can you can think about two we have sort of two um, types of memory we have short-term memory and long-term memory and um there's a famous uh experimental psychology uh result dating back from uh 55 it's, it's pretty old uh, that says something you probably heard about the magic number seven plus minus two um but it basically says, well, you, you can, you know, in your short term memory, you can fit about seven pieces of information uh, in your head, you know, plus minus two. So from five to nine um, and other, you know, other other experiments have, have later um, more or less confirmed this in the sense that there's some experiments that, that you know, indicate that the number might even be lower. Um, but the point is that our short term memory is really limited. Um, and then we have the short, the long-term memory, which is a completely different story. It works, you know, we don't even know what the capacity of that is. Um, but then I, I began to, th- and this is something I began to think about many years ago. I, I began to think about, you know, so when you, when you look at some source code and if you, ha- if you haven't seen that source code before, um, what you typically try to do is you try to somehow run a little emulator in your brain, trying to, you know, simulate you know what's actually going to happen you know if if the input is going to be you know 42 then how is that you know code actually going to run which branches is going to take if there's an if then uh, branch and and if, if there's a loop and so on you try to sort of understand what's going on um so you're running a little emulator in in your brain and that little emulator needs to have some state so it needs to keep track of all the you know variables uh, that are you know being used in a, in a piece of code that you're looking at. And if you have to keep track of more about more than about seven things that going on at the same time, you know, that becomes difficult for your brain. Um, and, um, so I started to, to think about, okay, so what if we can organize code in a way so that there's, you know, not so many things going on? What, what if we can organize, for example, a little method so we can say, well, method shouldn't be longer that than fits on a screen and that shouldn't be more than about seven things going on. Maybe we can, you know, look at cyclomatic complexity and say, you know, that shouldn't be more than about those five to nine, you know, so cyclomatic complexity, you know, at about five to nine would be at the limit of what the brain can do. That's one way to look at it. Or maybe we could just look at, you know, how many variables and, and objects do you actually have, you know, um, activated uh, in the same piece of code. So I started to, th- to think about a lot of those things. And, and what I've found, at least in practice, is that um, maybe, maybe the brain science doesn't hold. Maybe there will be some result in 10 years that say, all oh, that is just hogwash. Um, but I've still found that in practice, if you can keep you know, methods and functions small and with few you know, interacting parts, what you can do is you can basically walk up to you know a, a completely unknown piece of of code and you can fairly easily immediately understand what's going on 
because you don't you don't you know you don't have to bring a lot of context with you the the, the assumption that i'm making here is that a method like that would be more or less self-contained um but if you can do that, you know, you can basically walk up. If, if code is structured that way, you can basically walk up to it and just understand what's going on. And that means, you know, uh, that you don't have to have worked with the same code base for years and years and years to try to understand how it actually works. Um, but you can just, you know, go, you can go to something that's new that you haven't seen before and, and quite easily understand what's going on. Um, so I think, you know, if we can keep, you know, below those thresholds, code will fit in our heads and that should make it uh, much easier to maintain existing software that's that's sort of like the general idea if i find that it works pretty well in practice there's it's a, a little bit hard to get there uh, i'm sorry no, no there's a line in your book that you spend more time reading code than writing it yeah and that applies whether it's your own code because you're rereading it or it's somebody else's code because you're mm -hmm. dropped into some project so yeah the the, the simplicity is important but you know oh, yeah. when i look back at my own code from you know a year ago i'm kind of going, what the hell was i doing sometimes exactly yeah yeah and that's that's one of the things that i want to avoid so so one of the heuristics you can we can talk about here so one of the things that i talk about in the book is this idea of thresholds um so um you can there are plenty of ways you can you know monitor th thresholds like that but you might for example institute a rule in your in your code base where you say well okay so the maximum cyclomatic complexity for example uh, you know that's that's seven or ten or whatever you want to but just but keep it small at least or you can say that you know you can't have more than seven different objects going on in the same uh, method or some something like that and just you know treat that as a threshold so Either you write a little automated tool that checks for those things, or maybe you can just do some reviews, you know, code reviews or pull request reviews or whatever, you know. I, I'm, I'm, and I'm fairly agnostic to how you approach, you know, the actual, you know, monitoring. Um, but if you can sort of explicitly monitor and be aware of those things, so whenever your methods start to become too large, your reaction should be, I need to refactor this code so that it doesn't grow much bigger than this. Um, I would say that you have a much better chance to, you know, if you leave the code in that state, you'd have a much ch better chance to coming back to it, you know, six months from now and still be able to understand what's going on. You might still be, you know, react to say, what would I think? Was I thinking that back then? Because hopefully you've learned something and you've improved your skills in the meantime, but, but at least you would hopefully be able to understand it even if you've forgotten, you know, what you wrote. You say, okay, yeah, I wouldn't do it like this today, but this is clear and understandable and, and, I can, and I can easily refactor it to, you know, what I would look, want it to look like today. Um, so fitting in your head here, what, what, what we're really talking about this is short-term memory, you know, trying to develop a lot of different ways of working where we take into account that um, if you can walk up to a piece of unknown code or code that you haven't seen in six months and and if that code sort of fits into your short-term memory, you can basically just, you know, look at it for you know, maybe half a minute or something like that. And, and you say, yeah, okay, I, I, I get what this is doing. This, this is not difficult to understand. And then you also feel confident, you know, working with, with that code uh, from there on. Um, that's that's a, the ideal anyway. Yeah, it's a very good point. I, I find that, you know, as you say, short methods, good naming, clear variables coming in, parameters coming in clear values heading back out 
you know, yeah. express intention. But uh, I'm going to move us on because actually um, on that point of being able to come into a piece of code that was written some time ago and make a change to it, this is where test-driven development can be quite important. And, I, and you talk quite a bit about that in the book too. Yeah. Yeah. So, so again, that, that's, a, that's another example where, um, you know, where uh, we, we can now, you know, taking this notion of, you know, things, you know, you can fit about seven things in your head at, at, in your short term memory. Taking that notion will then, you know, if you take that on as, a, as an assumption, then an axiom that you accept, um, you can start to explain why something like unit testing or test driven development is uh, why that works. Um, because ideally, you know, a unit test should be fairly short and sweet in itself. Um, a unit test should typically have, you know, just a straight line through, you know, being deterministic, just have a cyclomatic complexity of one, you know, no branching, no looping inside the test. Um, so that already means that, you know, from a complexity standpoint, a, an individual unit test is should be easy to understand. And if you also just in, in general, if you can keep the unit tests you know the the code the body of the code small uh, so that you know that fits into your head in in other ways as well you know not a lot of activated objects and so on um, then you understand the unit test so even if the unit test is testing something that is very complicated um, maybe the, the the system under test that's been targeted by all of those tests maybe that doesn't really fit in your head but at least the tests ought to do so um, so and we've known this for a long time but it's just that, that now we sort of have a an underlying explanation that if you buy into this notion that you know that there is this short-term memory capacity that is very very small that now starts to explain why we can still trust unit tests even though we have no tests of the tests uh, because that's always a complaint that i get yeah but who's testing the test you know who's watching the watchman um but now we can sort of explain that there's this there's a threshold that if you can keep beneath that threshold code is is you know it fits into your head and that means it's understandable and it's probably not bug ridden when it fits in your head you know not saying that you can't have bugs in in a little piece of uh, in a, in you know three lines of code because you can but the um i think there's a threshold where if you if you cross that threshold the the um the frequency of bugs will probably also increase, you know, non-linearly at least. That's that's sort of my impression of things. That's an interesting um, point. I yeah. haven't, I've noticed it, but I wasn't necessarily aware of it. But unit tests, even poorly written ones, they're easy mm -hmm. to understand because yeah, you have exactly. a range act assert mm -hmm. typically, yeah. and they do a relatively small amount of things. They interact with relatively few other components, and even if you know they're poorly written they probably still do what you want. I mean, I have seen, I have seen a unit test that cheat where they assert true on, on a true, yeah. <laughs> but that's a different story. Yeah. Yeah. But you, you, um, you advocate for checklists and I think TDD is one of those things on a checklist, uh, well, when developing uh, yeah. applications. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So TDD is sort of like an automated checklist, but I think in general, uh, uh you know, I, I, I was inspired by a book called the checklist manifesto by Atul Gawande, uh, who's a, you know, a surgeon, uh, who found that, um, he picked up the idea of checklist from, you know, pilots. That's the original, you know, the origin of checklists. Um, but he found that he could actually, he has a good catchphrase saying you can improve the outcome with no increase in skill just by using checklists because, uh, you know, in hospitals, what they have problems with is 
that there are lots of things that in themselves are trivial, but you still forget to do them. You may forget to wash your hands, even though you say, well, no surgeon, you know, ever forgets to wash his hands. But they sometimes forget to do that because, you know, they're really, you know, everything is just uh, lots of sick people needs to be treated right away and so on. And that happens. Um, or maybe, you know, sometimes they operate on the they think they're operating on one patient, but it's actually another patient with another problem. And, and these things happen as well. And, and a checklist is a very cheap, uh, you know, way of, you know, getting rid of some of those really stupid mistakes. And I think that, you know, why wouldn't we adopt the same idea in software development there, you know, because we often see those things where we, um, where we, um, where we forget to do things that we ought to do. And then, then when we ask ourselves afterwards, you know, why didn't you do that? Oh, I forgot to do that. Um, and, um, and, you know, the, the programmer's natural reaction to, to, you know, a problem like that is to, well, we should write a tool that checks for all of those things. And obviously we can do that. Um, but sometimes you don't get around to write, writing that tool because the, the, you know, all the edge cases of the checklist, if you will, if you try to automate it, it's actually pretty sophisticated. And then you don't, you know, you see lots of software development organizations, then then they just don't do it. And then they forget about the things as well. And here I'm just coming and saying, well, okay, so there's a there's an alternative. If you if the you know, developing a tool to check for things is too expensive, then then have a checklist, put it on a poster, put it on the wall, you know, something like that, uh, or have a co-pilot that, that, you know, where the only thing you have to remember is that you should check the checklist and then you can run through that checklist together. Um, I'm, I'm actually working with a client right now who is doing some, um, they're doing some, um, they're doing parts of the new digital infrastructure in Denmark. Um, so this is very security sensitive stuff that they're doing. And they're also, they've been in the security, you know, software game for, you know, a long time now. Um, but I've noticed that they have, you know, a checklist for every pull request that, that we sent to them. Um, so I'm, I'm helping them with, with a little bit of, of things in the edge of the system. And whenever I send them a pull request, they have a, you know, template, uh, a GitHub template where, you know, you have to fill in a lot of, you know, things where you say, well, I, I did remember to do this. I did remember to do that. And it's just like, it, you know, even if some of those things could be automated, it's just nice to have, you know, it's an easier way to, to make sure that people remember to do all the things, just asking them, did you do that? Okay. Yes, I did. Did you do that? And no, I actually forgot to do that. So now, you know, you should probably shouldn't send the pull request. You should just go and check those things first. And then, so, you know, you're still in the honor system here in the sense you could just check all the things off, but, um, in, but that's for, where, you know, I'm sorry. Sorry for, for, you know, a, a small developer and development project. Yeah. Uh, I think you had things like make sure it's under source control, make sure it's uh -huh. under CICD, make sure it's got unit tests. Um, any other that's, ones that you would yeah. recommend? No, so so yeah, so the one that you're talking about right now is just that's my, you know, that's an example that comes up pretty early in the uh, in the book, uh, just in, when you're starting a new uh, a new code base. Here's some things that you should consider doing straight away because it's, they're much easier to do when the code base is brand new. Um, but it, you know, another example is the one that I just told you about with this sort of like a, a security review. Um, you can also describe the red green refactor cycle from you know test driven development. You can describe that as a checklist where you say, well, you should write a test. You know, did you write a, did you write a red, you know, test first? Yes, I did. Okay, did you see it fail in the, in the manner that you expected to see it fail? 
Yes, I did. Okay, now we can proceed to the green phase and so on. So you can describe that as a checklist as well. And most people, that particular checklist, if you've ever done any test-driven development, you probably internalize that checklist. So it doesn't have to be an explicit one. Um, but for people new to test-driven development, it might actually be, you know, um, um, advantageous to to make it an explicit checklist to say, well, did you remember to do that? Did you, did you remember did you check the actual assertion message to see that it's not a not implemented exception? It's actually the real assertion message that you're seeing failing and, and you know, things like that. Um, did you remember to run the test while you thought it was, it was supposed to fail? Because sometimes you do that and, and it turns out to be green right away. Um, so, yeah, so, th so there's, a, there's a few checklists in the book. Um, but I, I, I think I must admit that, that they're mostly just side, you know, you know, side remarks where I'm describing some other technique and then I'm, I'm telling the reader, well, and, and by the way, if you think this is difficult to, to remember, you can turn that into a checklist. Um, so the only explicit checklist I actually have in the book is, this, is the one that you mentioned. Um, but I hope the other things that I've just talked about here, it gives you some ideas about the, the breadth of, you know, how you can apply checklists. I even use it for the podcast. So before we started oh, yeah. talking, I check my mic, I check my headphones, I check my recorder, I check the audio volumes, I make sure that the recorder is started. I then check a sample of the recording to make sure it's getting both of us. And I yeah, do that yes. before we get into the body of the podcast because, you know, if something goes wrong two seconds before we're really meant to start, you know, you, you forget things. You kind of, you mm. don't necessarily panic, but you're trying to uh, make take shortcuts. So yeah, yeah, having that for me is really, really important. But again, I'll, I'll move us on in, in your book. You have a chapter on encapsulation, mm -hmm. and I think that's a topic that you're very interested in. Yeah, it's it's uh, encapsulation is one of those things that are really misunderstood because uh, you know usually the way you um, the way that that most developers have been presented with the idea of encapsulation is basically it boils down to well you can't expose your class fields directly you must have getter and setters around your class fields and so I you know and I I, I run into that from time to time when um, where people say, well, but you exposed, you know, I sometimes just expose a class field directly and then say, well, you're breaking an encapsulation and say, I, I, I don't think I am. Why? Why do you think that? Well, because you haven't, you need to have a get and setter. And so, okay, so that's okay. But I do that deliberately because now we can have a discussion about, you know, what's encapsulation. Um, encapsulation is actually also one of those things that, that you know, um, connects to this notion of code that fits into your head because the, the, the idea is that um, I'm, I'm, I'm um, basing a lot of my interpretation of interpret uh, of encapsulation f by uh, from uh, Bertrand Meyer's uh, work. He was the guy who invented um, Eiffel, the object-oriented language, back in the 80s. And um, and and basically, what he says is that uh, you know an object, an you know an encapsulation, an encapsulated object should be an object that can that that is guaranteed to always be in a valid state. Um, and I think that's a really important notion of encapsulation because you can have something that, in, you know, encapsulates a lot of, you know, complex logic. Uh, so you can have, can have an object that does all sorts of um, really fancy stuff. Um, but then the idea of encapsulation is more that it's not so much whether you expose data, but it's more like can you, um, can you think about this object as, uh, you know, a black box more or less and just three – treated as one thing um, without having to understand how it works internally. Um, 
because if you can do that, you know, again, we, if we have this, you know, capacity in our short term memory where we say um, we can only fit seven things in our short term memory. Now, if one of those objects can be if, if very complex behavior can be hidden behind a, you know, a facade that we can call an object. And then we can say, well, that object may do something really complicated, but I'm just going to think about it as one thing. That means I still have, you know, if we look at the magic number seven as our threshold, that means I, we, I still have seven, six more, you know, slots in my brain that can fit other information. Um, so encapsulation is more like this idea that I, as a, you know, client developer, I should be able to trust that objects behave in a predictable way, if you will, um, that they're not, you know, going to surprise me in all sorts of various, uh, you know, ways. And because, you know, if you have an object where you still need to understand the implementation details of it, it's, it's not one thing, you know, all of a sudden you need to think about the internal state of the object. And then that means instead of having to think about that object as one thing, you may have to think about it as three or four things because you need to think about the internal implementation details and the internal state of the object. So this idea of encapsulation is basically to say, well, the, the object should hide away those implementation details to a, such a sufficient degree that you can think of it as one thing, and 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 that means that you know now it fits in your head because it's only one thing. It's not five or ten things. It's just that small thing. Um, so encapsulation, into, in in my um, in my viewpoint, and and I adopted that from Bertram Meyer, um, is this notion of an object should always be you know, it's the object's own responsibility to, to make sure that it can only be in, an, in a valid state. So even if you do state mutation, if you have some method that changes the state of the of the object, um, either, you know, you should design the API so that you can only do the, you know, the valid things, or, you know, at least you should do a runtime check so that if people are trying, if callers are trying to do something that is invalid, uh, it's going to throw an exception instead of just, you know, silently allowing the object to enter into a, you know, a state that then later on is going to throw an exception. Then you might as well throw the exception right away. Um, so, so I think, you know, in this idea of encapsulation is basically an, an idea about um, being able to, to trust, you know, an object to behave in a predictable way. And that means we can sort of think, you know, we can com compact all the complexity in an object into just, you know, one thing. And then we can, you know, we still have other, you know, we still have other slots in, in our short-term memory that we can, you know, think about other things as well. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. but on that point of kind of the short-term memory and the principle of seven, how would yeah. you apply that to the bigger picture, let's say software architecture? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so one idea, one one term that I introduce in the book is what I call fractal architecture, and the reason why I call it that is because I think that you know this principle um, that there should be a small number of things going on that should apply regardless of the level of granularity you look at at the um, at the code base. Um, so, if for example, if you think you you're getting a completely new code base like the one that that comes with the book. Um, you should be be able to go into the entry point of the application, and and that entry point in the application should give you a um, high level view of how the application is is structured, how the architecture of that application works, and there shouldn't be more going on in that entry point that it fits in your head. Now, obviously, you know if if there's 
you know, only seven things, uh, say, going on at the entry point. Now, obviously, all those seven things will be extremely high level. They, they'll be quite abstract, um, but they should give you a general idea about, okay, so how how is this application actually structured? Uh, you know, what are the dependencies? How does, how, how does it co- compose things, you know? It, Often people would be interested in something like, um, so where's the persistent uh, engine in this um, in this system? Does it use uh, SQL Server? Does it use Oracle? Does it use you know some uh, you know document database on cloud you know cloud service somewhere? You know that sort of of questions you probably will have when you go into a completely new uh, code base, and the entry point will not answer all the details, but they'll tell you where to go look next. So if you want to look at, at storage, for example, then you can follow you know, one of those seven things that are being arranged in the entry point, and then you can sort of zoom in on the point that's, or the, the, the part of the code that, that, um, that sets up and composes the storage system, uh, the, sor- the subsystem. And when you zoom in on that, you know, all the other things that go on in, in the application, you know, the user interface layer or locking or whatever else uh, you might think of that, that might also be relevant. That should, at that point, um, that should just disappear because now you zoomed into a particular subsystem of the, of the code. And then again, at that level of zoom, there should be at most seven things going on. And again, they're, they're going to be abstract, but a little more concrete than at the entry point. And then you might be interested in, in one of the details there, and then you zoom in there, and the rest of the context should basically disappear from you. And then once you've zoomed in there, there should be only seven things going on. So you, well, you know, um, so I call it fractal architecture because the idea is that you know, at a at a structural level in the, in the terms of the size of things, um, you keep on applying the same heuristic all the way through, you know, from the highest level into this, the, you know, the, the tiniest, grainy, more, you know, granular detail of the code base. Now, it's not a real fractal because sooner or later it's going to stop. It's not going to keep on going forever. Um, but that's sort of the general idea. So so you could actually, one of the one of the ways that I illustrate that is, is just by drawing a fractal tree. Um, and you've probably seen fractal trees, but this is the idea where you just you just draw a branch, uh, and then you know in this case you you know you brought you branch out with seven new branches, and then each of those branches you know branch out with seven new branches and so on. So you can that's a fractal tree. Uh, so that's one way of illustrating that where you say well um, you always sort of you, you can imagine that you're always standing at one of those branch points. Uh, so there's always seven things that you can look at, but no more. And then once you decide to go and look at one of the sub-branches, then there's a new, you know, seven things that you can look at and so on. So that's why I call it fractal architecture. Um, and again, this is one of the things that I've tried to practice um, for years now. And I, it, it is possible. It, it does require some discipline. So again, it's, it, it's, it's not an idea, you know, that, that comes for, for free. Um, you, I would... I definitely expect to meet naysayers who say, "Well, but that's impossible in practice," um, and 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 I would say, "Well, I don't think it is because I have done this in practice. Uh, it's not a technique I just invented for the book in order to make it sound good. I've actually done this in practice, but it it does require a lot of that other discipline where you're always aware of the of the thresholds and you don't 
allow things you don't allow technical debt to accumulate um so, so that's another thing I, I don't talk that much about technical debt because i think michael feathers has always you know already written the you know the um the book about that topic um but um but basically the idea is that um if you're in a, at least in a new code base you should not allow technical debt to accumulate and one of the ways you can fight that is by being quite aggressive about the thresholds uh, that you um, that you allow um so if you think like uh, you know for example a threshold of seven or maybe ten if you like that number better uh, to say well okay nothing should have a cyclomatic complexity of more than that threshold if you think seven or ten is a very small number it is um then um, at least i can say well but it's better to have a very aggressive threshold um, because then you are sure that things are never going to even get near um, any sort of gray gray area, if you will. You just you you never allow technical debt to to accumulate, and of course, some sometimes things are going to slip through still. But one of the in, things as well about your book I like is that you step away from the technical stuff mm -hmm. and you talk about taking breaks, and you have an example of a eureka moment. Yeah, <laughs> can you can you tell us that one? Um, I've I've had quite a few actually um, you know insights and and one thing that I've noticed very consistently about all the insights I've had about software development you know particular projects and just in general is that I've I can't recall ever having had an insight in front of my computer um, it's it always happens when I'm away so. Um, um, I had a, a job many years ago where I was bicycling, you know, back and forth uh, between the job and my home because, you know, Copenhagen is a bicycling city. And uh, I was just I was thinking about this open source project that I was uh, developing at that time. And basically that's that project is designed on my bicycle going back and forth, you know, every day, you know, uh, you know, half an hour the one way, half an hour the other way, um, because, you know, I would. I would often get stuck when I came home, you know, I'd get a good idea on the bike and I'd get home and then I would, you know, try to implement that idea. And what often happens then is that, ah, it, you know, you run into reality and things don't quite work that way. And then, you know, you, one of the nice things about doing open source is that there are no deadlines. So you, you basically when that happens, I just, you know, step away from the keyboard and say, well, I'll deal with this later on. And then I took another bike ride the next day and then I would be thinking about the problem some more and then often I'd have a new idea and then I'd come back in the afternoon and try it out and so on. Um, so I've noticed that, you know, that, that's sort of like a, a, a life hack, if you will, that, you know, have plenty of breaks um, and uh, do something else. Uh, that, that really helps. Um, so, um, so actually... I've um, I started doing you know it's not actually the Pomodoro technique but you know this thing about you know just you know setting aside 25 minutes and um, and I find that it's um, well one thing it's it's a pretty good life hack if you will in the sense that if there's something you don't want to do um, then you know just doing doing it for 25 minutes that works but that's the normal way of, of presenting the pomodoro technique or that you know time boxing technique uh, but what i found also is is you know it's really interesting it's i actually use it to break flow uh so 
Uh, this is probably a little bit controversial in terms of you know software development because most software developers like being in the zone that's what we call it but you know the psychological term is is flow the flow state um, is where we don't notice that time passes by and we just you know we're just having a good time so this happens when people are you know, playing computer games or you know you know doing sports if they if they like doing sports and things like that um so flow state is is a very um, desirable psychological state because that's where you forget, um, you basically forget yourself and, and time just flies by. Um, and, and the funny thing about software development and, and flow state or being in the zone is that um, it it can feel incredibly productive because you're just sitting there and you're coding for hours and hours and, and all of a sudden you look up and it's dark outside and you said, well, where did all the time go? Um, so it feels productive, but it it may not have to be productive because, you know, we should be quite aware that, you know, we don't measure productivity by lines of code. So what often happens in that flow state is that you write a lot of code, uh, but no one you know, you, 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 there's no guarantee that that code you write in, in, in when you're in the zone is actually good code. Um, so I've actually found that I'm using the time boxing technique to to do the opposite thing. So it's, I actually use it to break my flow. So if I'm in, in the flow state where I'm really writing and I think, okay, this is just so cool. And then the little timer goes off and ding. And it's frustrating in the moment, but then, you know, if you can force yourself to just get out of the chair and out of the room and just, you know, take a, a couple of minutes break. Um, what I found is that often when I come back to the computer, um, I have realized that the thing that I'm doing at the moment is probably not going to work. Um, because I just took, uh, you know, a little bit of a step back and then, you know, thought, about the problem a little bit more holistically than I was when I was in this, you know, in the zone. Um, so often when I when I come back to a problem after I've just been been away for for a couple of minutes, is that I realize, okay, so I'm in the zone now, and it, things are going great, and I'm producing a lot of code, um, but you know, two hours down down the road. I'm going to hit a dead end because the direction that I'm taking at the moment is never going to work because of, you know, blah, 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 whatever the realization is. Um, and so, you know, having that realization sooner rather than later, that just saved me a couple of hours of work because now I understand, yeah, that's probably not a good idea after all. Um, but I, I wouldn't have, you know, come to that realization if I hadn't had the break. Um, so I really, I, I'm very disciplined about taking those breaks. And my personal rule is that I have to get out of the chair. I have to leave the room. Uh, I have a, you know, a home office. I mostly work at, a, at home. So I have to leave the, the room. Um, and, and my definition of leaving the room is I have to step over the threshold of the door. So sometimes if I'm really into the zone, I, I, you know, this sometimes happens. I just, you know, walk to the door, step over the threshold and then come back and, and put myself in the seat and I keep on working. Um, that happens as well. So, um, but, um, but what often happens just, you know, the, the, the act of getting out of your chair makes you think of something else. And, and it's often, you know, this thing about having to think, think about something else is actually often uh, a, a good idea. You sent me a draft of the book as a PDF mm -hmm. and within a few pages of looking at it, it was sort of, Oh, this is LaTeX. And I went, mm -hmm. you know, why? Why 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 would you do this to yourself? 
Um, so so um, there's a couple of reasons. The first one is that LaTeX is a text format, uh, and that means um, you know I can good, have good source control um, in the book. You know, I, so everything is is in Git. And then, and then you might say, well, but you can do that with Markdown or HTML or things like that as well. And that's true. Um, but LaTeX actually has a lot of good tools for doing cross references and you know a, a bibliography and things like that. And you can manage all of those things. Um, so so writing a book of several hundred pages and, and having the ability to cross-reference between different chapters and so on, um, you know, that's just built into LaTeX. So I thought that's that's that was a quite a, a, um, an attractive thing. So that's one thing. And the other thing is that I wanted to um, I wanted to include lots of code in the um, in the book. And I didn't want to, in the first book, you know, I wrote a book 10 years ago. And in that one, I was basically, I would just take the code from my from Visual Studio and copy and paste it into the manuscript. Um, and that's a really fragile process because one, sometimes you, you edit the code, but then you forget to, you know, copy it in all the all the places in the manuscript where it needs to, to be. And LaTeX Action has a, a plugin that where you can just point it at a code base and say, um, just take that file and take from that line number to that line number and highlight those things and um, it just pulls that that autom automatically and just puts it in the manuscript um, so that enabled me to have a full code base sitting you know besides the manuscript and just do that automatically uh, so those those were the two, two main reasons and i must uh, admit that yeah well i did run into a few things with LaTeX, but in general i found it to be um, it, it 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 was actually a bit i'm gonna do it again it was no, a good, that's good, good i had an yeah. awful experience with it <laughs> yeah back in 2004 um, when is the book coming out, and how do we buy it? Um, it's it's out in uh, September. It's uh, from uh, Edison Wesley, um, so late September probably. It's it'll be in print form. It'll be an ebook, uh, PDF, and, and Kindle. And then places like Amazon, Barnes and Noble in the US. Oh yeah, you can you can pre-order it on on Amazon.com already. Oh okay, very good. And yeah. any final notes before we wrap up for the morning, Mark? Uh, no, just, uh, you know, if people are interested in learning more, they can just find me on my blog. Um, if they want to know if, if I have any upcoming appearances, um, then that's the blog as well. I don't have anything planned uh, at the yeah. moment because of the COVID situation. Um, but, uh, I would like to start traveling and, and mm. meeting my audience again. Uh, but, um, you can follow me on there or on Twitter and then I'll, I'll, um, I'll announce if anything happens. Super. I'll put in links to everything. Mark Seaman, thank you very much for your time this morning. Thank you for having me. If you like this episode, you might also like episode 123 with Dane Hillard on good software practices, or episodes 85 and 86 with Mark Seaman on dependency injection, or episode 54 with Mark Seaman on functional programming and F-sharp.
The opening music was a return by Nisi23 from the album 11 and 12, and the closing music was Beyond the Horizon by Gautama from the album Night Improvisations. <laughs> 